Chapters 7 and 8 of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Osendowski. Chapter 7 Through Soviet Siberia. After several days we started through the forest on the left bank of the Yenisei, toward the south, avoiding the villages as much as possible in fear of leaving some trail by which we might be followed. Whenever we did have to go into them, we had a good reception at the hands of the peasants, who did not penetrate our disguise, and we saw that they hated the Bolsheviki, who had destroyed many of their villages. In one place we were told that a detachment of red troops had been sent out from Minusinks, to chase the whites, we were forced to work far back from the shore of the Yenisei and to hide in the woods and mountains. Here we remained nearly a fortnight, because all this time the red soldiers were traversing the country and capturing in the woods half-dressed, unarmed officers who were in hiding from the atrocious vengeance of the Bolsheviki. Afterwards, by accident, we passed a meadow where we found the bodies of twenty-eight officers hung to the trees with their faces and bodies mutilated. There we determined never to allow ourselves to come alive into the hands of the Bolsheviki. To prevent this, we had our weapons and a supply of cyanide of potassium. Passing along one branch of the Yenisei, once we saw a narrow, miry pass, the entrance to which was strewn with the bodies of men and horses. A little farther along we found a broken sleigh with rifled boxes and papers scattered about. Near them was also torn garments and bodies. Who were these pitiful ones? What tragedy was staged in this wild wood? We tried to guess this enigma, and we began to investigate the documents and papers. These were official papers addressed to the staff of General Popoleyev. Probably one part of the staff during the retreat of Kolchak's army went through this wood, striving to hide from the enemy approaching from all sides but here they were caught by the Reds and killed. Not far from here, we found the body of a poor, unfortunate woman, whose condition proved clearly what had happened before relief came through the beneficent bullet. The body lay beside a shelter of branches, strewn with bottles and conserve tins, telling the tale of the bantering feast that had preceded the destruction of this life. The further we went to the south, the more pronouncedly hospitable the people became toward us, and the more hostile to the Bolsheviki. At last we emerged from the forests, and entered the spacious vastness of the Minusinsk steppes, crossed by the high red mountain range called the Kizilkaya, and dotted here and there with salt lakes. It is a country of tombs, thousands of large and small dolmens, the tombs of the earliest proprietors of this land. Pyramids of stone ten meters high, the marks set by Genghis Khan along his road of conquest, and afterwards by the cripple Tamerlane Timur. Thousands of these dolmens and stone pyramids stretch in endless rows to the north. In these plains the Tartars now live. They were robbed by the Bolsheviki, and therefore hated them ardently. We openly told them that we were escaping. They gave us food for nothing, and supplied us with guides telling us with whom we might stop and where to hide in case of danger. After several days we looked down from the high bank of the Yenisei upon the first steamer, the Oriol, from Krasnoyarsk to Minusinsk, 
laden with red soldiers. Soon we came to the mouth of the river Tuba, where we were to follow straight east to the Sayan Mountains, where Yurianhai begins. We thought the stage along the Tuba and its branch, the Amil, the most dangerous part of our course, because the valleys of these two rivers had a dense population which had contributed large numbers of soldiers to the celebrated communist partisans, Shetinkin and Kravcheno. A Tartar ferried us and our horses over to the right bank of the Yenisei, and afterwards sent us some Cossacks at daybreak, who guided us to the mouth of the Tuba, where we spent the whole day in rest, gratifying ourselves with a feast of wild black currants and cherries. Chapter 8. Three Days on the Edge of a Precipice Armed with our false passports, we moved along up the valley of the Tuba. Every ten or fifteen versts we came across large villages of from one to six hundred houses, where all administration was in the hands of Soviets, and where spies scrutinized all passers-by. We could not avoid these villages for two reasons— First, our attempts to avoid them, when we were constantly meeting the peasants in the country, would have aroused suspicion, and would have caused any Soviet to arrest us, and send us to the Cheka, in Minusinsk, where we should have sung our last song. Secondly, in his documents my fellow-traveller was granted permission to use the government post-relays for forwarding him on his journey. Therefore we were forced to visit the village Soviets and change our horses." Our own mounts we had given to the Tartar and Cossack, who helped us at the mouth of the Tuba, and the Cossack brought us in his wagon to the first village, where we received the post-horses. All except a small minority of the peasants were against the Bolsheviki, and voluntarily assisted us. I paid them for their help by treating their sick, and my fellow-traveller gave them practical advice in the management of their agriculture." Those who helped us chiefly were the old dissenters and the Cossacks. Sometimes we came across villages entirely communistic, but very soon we learned to distinguish them. When we entered a village with our horse-bells tinkling, and found the peasants who happened to be sitting in front of their houses, ready to get up with a frown and a grumble that here were more new devils coming, we knew that this was a village opposed to the communists, and that here we could stop in safety. But, if the peasants approached and greeted us with pleasure, calling us comrades, we knew at once that we were among the enemy, and took great precautions. Such villages were inhabited by people who were not the Siberian liberty-loving peasants, but by emigrants from the Ukraine, idle and drunk, living in poor, dirty huts, though their village were surrounded with the black and fertile soil of the steppes. Very dangerous and pleasant moments we spent in the large village of Karatuz. It is rather a town. In the year 1912 two colleges were opened here, and the population reached 15,000 people. It is the capital of the South Yenisei Cossacks. But by now it is very difficult to recognize this town. The peasant emigrants and Red Army murdered all the Cossack population, and destroyed and burned most of the houses and it is at present the centre of Bolshevism and Communism in the eastern part of the Minusinsk district. In the building of the Soviet, where we came to exchange our horses, there was being held a meeting of the Cheka. We were immediately surrounded and questioned about our documents. 
we were not any too calm about the impression which might be made by our papers, and attempted to avoid this examination. My fellow-traveller afterwards often said to me, "'It is great good fortune that among the Bolsheviki the good-for-nothing shoemaker of yesterday is the governor of to-day, and scientists sweep the streets or clean the stables of the Red Cavalry. I can talk with the Bolsheviki because they do not know the difference between disinfection and diphtheria, anthracite and appendicitis, and can talk them round in all things, even up to persuading them not to put a bullet into me. And so we talked the members of the Cheka round to everything that we wanted. We presented to them a bright scheme for the future development of their district, when we would build the roads and bridges which would allow them to export the wood from Urianhai, iron and gold from the Sayan Mountains, cattle and furs from Mongolia. What a triumph of creative work for the Soviet government! Our ode occupied about an hour, and afterwards the members of the Cheka, forgetting about our documents, personally changed our horses, placed our luggage on the wagon, and wished us success. It was the last ordeal within the borders of Russia. When we had crossed the valley of the river Amil, happiness smiled on us. Near the ferry we met a member of the militia from Karatuz. He had on his wagon several rifles and automatic pistols, mostly Mausers, for outfitting an expedition through Urianhai in quest of some Cossack officers who had been greatly troubling the Bolsheviki. We stood upon our guard. We could very easily have met this expedition, and we were not quite assured that the soldiers would be so appreciative of our high-sounding phrases as were the members of the Cheka. Carefully questioning the militiaman, we ferreted out the route their expedition was to take. In the next village we stayed in the same house with him. I had to open my luggage, and suddenly I noticed his admiring glance fixed upon my bag. "'What pleases you so much?' I asked. He whispered, "'Trousers! Trousers!' I had received from my townsmen quite new trousers of black, thick cloth for riding. Those trousers attracted the rapt attention of the militiaman. "'If you have no other trousers,' I remarked, reflecting upon my plan of attack against my new friend. "'No,' he explained with sadness, "'the Soviet does not furnish trousers. They tell me they also go without trousers, and my trousers are absolutely worn out. Look at them.' With these words he threw back the corner of his overcoat, and I was astonished how he could keep himself inside these trousers— for they had such large holes that they were more of a net than trousers, a net through which a small shark could have slipped. "'Sell me?' he whispered, with a question in his voice. "'I cannot, for I need them myself,' I answered decisively. He reflected for a few minutes, and afterwards, approaching me, said, "'Let us go outdoors and talk. Here it is inconvenient.' We went outside." "'Now, what about it?' he began. "'You are going into Urianhai. There the Soviet banknotes have no value, and you will not be able to buy anything, where there are plenty of sables, foxskins, ermine, and gold dust to be purchased, which they very willingly exchange for rifles and cartridges. You have each of you a rifle, and I will give you one more rifle with a hundred cartridges, 
if you give me the trousers. We do not need weapons. We are protected by our documents, I answered, as though I did not understand. But no, he interrupted. You can change that rifle there into furs and gold. I shall give you that rifle outright. Ah, that's it, is it? But it's very little for those trousers. Nowhere in Russia can you now find trousers. All Russia goes without trousers, and for your rifle I should receive a sable, and what use to me is one skin. Word by word I attained to my desire. The militiaman got my trousers, and I received a rifle with one hundred cartridges, and two automatic pistols with forty cartridges each. We were armed now so that we could defend ourselves. Moreover, I persuaded the happy possessor of my trousers to give us a permit to carry the weapons. Then the law and force were both on our side. In a distant village we bought three horses, two for riding and one for packing, engaged a guide, purchased dried bread, meat, salt and butter, and, after resting twenty-four hours, began our trip up the Amil toward the Sayan Mountains on the border of Urianhai. There we hoped not to meet Bolsheviki, either sly or silly. In three days from the mouth of the Tuba, we passed the last Russian village near the Mongolian Urianhai border, three days of constant contact with a lawless population, of continuous danger, and of the ever-present possibility of fortuitous death. Only iron willpower, presence of mind, and dogged tenacity brought us through all the dangers and saved us from rolling back down our precipice of adventure, at whose foot lay so many others who had failed to make the same climb to freedom which we had just accomplished. Perhaps they lacked the persistence or the presence of mind. Perhaps they had not the poetic ability to sing odes about roads, bridges, and gold mines. Or perhaps they simply had no spare trousers. End of chapter